We're continuing our study this morning in the book of Philippians. And we're calling this series, Every Knee Will Bow. It's a study that focuses on an early Christian hymn that you find there in chapter 2. And it's a hymn that gives you this very large panoramic view of who Jesus is. And it, we start way before time began. And the hymn takes us to what Jesus did here in time and space on earth. And then it takes us back to where he is now, exalted above every name, waiting for that time until every knee will bow. And we talked last week about how important it is that you keep in mind this great big picture of Christ, especially during this season, during this month of December. As you know, we're in the middle of a culture-wide celebration. It's a lot of fun. It's a really good time, but it's a time in which you can easily lose sight of Christ. So I want to ask you, how are you doing with my challenge that I gave you last week? Do you remember that challenge where, where I said, can you spend as much time focusing on Christ? Can you spend as much time meditating on Christ as you do on all the other elements of this seasonal time? I've talked with a number of you uh, who have said, you know, that was really helpful for me. Thank you. There's other people who have said, well, here's actually what I'm doing in order to focus on Christ. I want to talk with you about one other person this morning. One of the youth came to me this past week and said, you know what, that, that, that's a lot of time. I was just out shopping with my mom last week, and, and we were out for hours. I, I don't know if it's possible to spend that much time focusing on Jesus. I was really glad to have that conversation. I thought it was a really good interaction with that young man. Because what is he saying? He's saying that for all of the fun of this season, sometimes it can capture you and it can overshadow your faith in such a strong way that you start to think, I just don't have any options. I'm just going to have to go along with the flow here. Obviously, that's not true, but there are times where it feels like that. And I was encouraged by that conversation because here's a young person who's growing. At which point the skeptics among us say growing. It doesn't sound like they're growing. It sounds like they're flailing. What is part of growing? Part of growing is learning how your culture makes it difficult for you to actually live out your faith. If you don't see where it's difficult to live out your faith, there's no way that you can actually engage your faith to live in that place. And so part of growth starts with just becoming aware, oh my goodness, that's a lot of time. Now what this, is, what this young man is saying is always true. It's always hard to live faithfully in your society. And yet this time of year can be that much more distracting than normal. Had a helpful analogy given to me a number of years ago by a, a lady. I shared this with the leadership boards this past Monday night, shared it with the staff, heard that it'd be helpful to share this morning as well. This lady was watching a documentary, and it was a documentary about a ship that had sunk hundreds of years earlier, and these divers were going down, seeing if they could bring anything back up to the surface that was valuable, and what they brought back up to the surface was this crusty-looking, big coral growth kind of thing, and the lady thought to herself, why didn't you bring that back up? And then they started picking off all the little pieces of coral, and underneath is this beautiful crucifix, this gold cross that has all kinds of different gemstones on it. They had all been hidden by the things that were growing on top of it. And the more that you think about it, the more you realize December can be a little bit like that. Nothing wrong with celebrating friends and family, enjoying this time of year, but it's possible, like that young man pointed out, that all of those things can get in the way, actually, of seeing Christ. There's nothing wrong, here's the analogy, there's nothing wrong with coral. Coral's a wonderful thing. It grows in the ocean. God put it there. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's glorious in and of itself. There's only a problem if it's going to obscure something more important. So what is it that I'm 
looking for for you this season? What do I want for you? Well, I said it last week. Here it is just different words. I don't want you to hate the coral. I want you to enjoy the celebrations, and I want you to enjoy your family, and I want you to enjoy your friends, and I want you to enjoy the presents and the parties. But I don't want those things to be more exciting to you than Christ. I don't want you to get more life out of those things than you do out of Christ. What I want for you is to see the wonder and the glory of Jesus. And I want you to see the wonder and glory of Jesus so much so that if you got all the coral this season that you could possibly want, but you didn't get Jesus, then I would want you to wake up on December 25th and feel like you were absolutely cheated. Or let me say it a little bit differently. Let me say it from the opposite end because I want to speak to another group of people for just a moment. You realize it's really possible to go throughout this entire season and not get any coral. In fact, our Christian brothers and sisters throughout time and history have done that. We have many brothers and sisters around the world right now who live in a country where there is no Christmas celebration. There's no hint or any acknowledgement of who Christ is. You can live in that setting and not get any coral. Or I think about people that I've talked with who have had so many bad experiences throughout the Christmas season, they literally, literally cannot imagine anything good in it. Because everything good that they've ever experienced in the Christmas season just set them up to be that much more hurt. And so for them, this is a season where you go from heartbreak to heartbreak to heartbreak to heartbreak. And if that's you this morning, you're not wondering, how am I going to enjoy the coral? You're wondering, how am I going to survive this season? And you're wondering, is Jesus really big enough? Is he big enough to redeem this season? You're wondering, how do I get through it? How do I skip it? Or, or as one person said to me, I'm wondering if I should just sleep through it. Wherever you are on the continuum of celebrating this December, whether you absolutely love this season or whether you absolutely despise it, I want you to be so captivated by Jesus, so filled with wonder, that even if you got no quarrel at all this year, but you did get Jesus, then you would wake up on December 25th and think that you were the luckiest person alive. That's our hope as Christ followers. Our hope is that we can see Jesus so clearly that we're going to just be overwhelmed with the wonder of who he is and run to him just like the crowds did when he was living here on earth. So to that end, I'm going to invite us all to read our scripture passage together this morning. And since we're trying to memorize it together, I've taken the liberty of dropping a couple of the words out behind me. Not to make it harder, but to show you that you already know a number of these words and, and to help encourage you. If you get in trouble, take out your bookmark and look at the back. That you, you have the cheat sheet there. I've already given that to you. Actually, Children's Ministry gave this to you. This was their idea. What are you supposed to do with this? You're supposed to take this home and put it in the devotional that you're reading through. And that way, when you read through one of the day's devotional readings, you can turn this over and you can read the scripture passage together as a family. If you read this out loud over the next several weeks, you will have mostly memorized it already. So let's read together Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, you did really well, okay? Keep working at that, and by the end of the month, we'll all have it down together. Today, we're just focusing on verse 7. We saw last week that Jesus did not use his equality with God to his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. Or as your version might say, he emptied himself. He did something. He either made himself nothing or he emptied himself. He decided to do something that he didn't actually have to do. He could have chosen not to empty himself. He could have chosen not to make himself nothing. He could have used equality with God to his own advantage, and he chose something else. What is it that he chose? He took on the very nature of a servant. So instead of hanging on to the glory that he had in that highest position, he descended past all persons, past all positions, down to the very lowest rank as a servant. He took on the nature of a servant. And that word nature should sound familiar to you because we talked about it last week. It's the same Greek word that you find in verse 6 that describes Jesus' nature, being in very nature God. If you recall, it's a word that refers to something's fundamental essence, its internal characteristics, its internal qualities. And so this Jesus, whose essential nature is God, took on another essential nature, that of a servant. That gives you a window and a glimpse into the heart of who God is. That's his nature. And, and, and it ought to amaze you that the creator of the universe has stooped now in order to serve his creation. But if you don't think about it, that's not going to sound very special because you're going to think to yourself, well, I, I've seen other people who had a lot of privilege and a lot of position, and they stooped to serve someone else. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of that service, or maybe you've been one of the privileged people who has served other people. And so you, you know people who are charitable, who are philanthropic, who care, but their service hasn't made them nothing, hasn't emptied themselves in the same way that Jesus is has. And so you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, what, how does what Jesus did empty him? How does it make him nothing? We keep finishing the sentence. In order to serve the need that we had, he was made in human likeness. His emptying, his making himself nothing, is not because he took something away from himself. It's actually because he added something to himself. He became human. He didn't just come to humanity. He actually joined humanity. I'd like to suggest this morning that you will not find a parallel for that. People who stoop to serve others don't tie themselves forever to the people that they serve. They, for the most part, they don't move in with them. They don't live with them. They don't experience what those other people experience. It's real care. It's legitimate care. It's concern. But it's not a concern that actually makes them lose their own privilege. They still hang on to that even while they're serving. They don't willingly swap places with less privileged people. 
And if you're one of the skeptics this morning, you want to push me a little bit and you want to say, well, well, what about someone like Mother Teresa? Even someone like Mother Teresa is not giving up her privilege. And here's what I mean by that. I was part of a church in Philadelphia. And the church believed that you could not serve people in the inner city unless you actually moved in to the inner city and lived there. And so I did. And I've met other people here at Chowton who have done some, a similar kind of thing. And it's appropriate to do that. Because you can't understand what it's like to deal with things like racism or economic injustice or inequality and, and political corruption and failed social policies unless you actually are experiencing them on a day-to-day -day basis. You have to actually live there. Here's what I learned the hard way. Even if you do that, you still don't know what it's like. How is that possible? Because one day, I did something. I moved out. And as I moved out, I left other people who couldn't move out, which meant by definition that me and they are not exactly the same. We're not experiencing the world in the same kind of way. If you can choose to move in and you can choose to move out, you're different. There's nothing that ties you there. What does that mean? It means you're still privileged. And so I can move into the inner city and I can experience all that. I can share in that, but I can't fully become part of that. And here's where Jesus' serving is different. He's a real servant of humanity because he tied himself to us forever by becoming one of us. In a very real way, he can't get out. He took that option away from himself, which means he really then does know how to serve us. He gets us from the inside. He knows what it's like to experience every part of the human condition. He knows what it's like to be tempted by everything that has ever tempted you. He did not give in to sin, but he understands the pressures and the things that you face. Have you ever had family members who didn't get you and they made fun of you? So has Jesus. Have you ever been tempted by things that really could have tripped you up? So is Jesus. Have you had power struggles with those who are in charge? Jesus checks the box on that one. Have you disagreed with how your nation is run and what it's focusing on? He checks the box on that one too. Have you seen the hypocrisy of organized religion and how it gets in the way of loving God? He gets a double check on that box. Jesus knows on the inside exactly what it's like to be you. And the book of Hebrews tells us that it was necessary for him to join us because it's that experience that then qualifies him to be our high priest. Because up until that point, God knew us and he knew what we needed, but until Jesus became a human being, we could turn back to God and say, but you don't really know what it's like. You don't know how hard it is to live here. After Jesus becomes a human being, you realize, yes, he does. And it's that experience that qualifies them to be our high priest. We can go to him and know that he will be a sympathetic high priest because he's walked in all of the same kinds of things that we've walked in. He's a sympathetic high priest who will give us the help that we need in time of trouble because he's experienced firsthand how hard it is to live a life of faith on this planet. He knows in a very real way how hard it is to live a life of faith throughout the month of December. And it's that understanding that gives us confidence to go to him because we'll know, we know that we'll get the grace, we'll get the help that we need in those moments of trouble for us. He was made a human being. 
That's really easy to say. It's really hard to understand. It's mind-blowing. I've wrestled all week long with what does it mean that Jesus is now and forever human. In true confession, after this week of study, I've come away now with more questions than I have answers. And if we sat down together, we would discover that you have more questions than you have answers. And In fact, I'd welcome that, and we could have a good time engaging. What is it that you've seen about Christ? What do I think I've seen of Christ? It really probably should not surprise us that we have all of those questions. You realize that the church has wrestled for hundreds and hundreds of years with what does it mean that God became a human being? If you look to go back into early church history, it actually takes hundreds of years for the church to wrestle with this question. The ESV Study Bible lists six different heresies that the church was wrestling with. Uh, there, there's actually many, many more. Those are sort of the main major ones. But heresies that either attacked Jesus' divinity or attacked his humanity. And it's not until 451 A.D. That's over 400 years after the church has started that the church actually comes together and says, this is what we understand the Scripture to be saying about Jesus. A number of things that they say. Here's a couple that, are, that are really stand out. Number one, they said, you have got to understand Jesus is still fully God. By taking on humanity, Jesus did not become less than God. And that was his own testimony about himself. We talked last week about how Paul and the early church recognized him as God. But you may have had people come to you and say, well, okay, that's, that's what the church said, but that's not actually what Jesus said about himself. And all you have to do is go back to the Gospels and read about the way that people reacted to Jesus. And you realize, yes, it was. He was very clear in calling himself God. The, the, church, uh, the Jewish people a number of times got angry enough with him, they wanted to kill him. Here's one place in John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And the leaders tried all the more to kill him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's very clear. Jesus understood who he was. Now, again, if you're one of the skeptics this morning, then you're going to push me, and you're going to say, okay, but his disciples wrote that. That's still what they thought about him, not what he thought about himself. Well, think for a moment. Who were his first disciples? They were Jewish. What was the context in which they were speaking? It was Jewish. This is not a Greek kind of world where the, the planes between human and divine are sort of fluid. This is a plane in, in which they're the last people on earth who would ever consider calling a man God. That, that's the ultimate blasphemy. So they are only going to write that down if what? If it's really true, if it's what Jesus really said. You can deny his divinity, but you can't deny that he himself actually said that about himself. Council of Chal Chalcedon underlines that Jesus is fully God. Second thing, however, is that he is also fully human. He doesn't simply have an appearance of humanity, but really has a different kind of essence inside. He's not God dressed up in a human suit. He's not faking it. He's not wearing a mask. Or as a couple of people talked with me this past week, they said, he's not really Superman, just sort of wearing the Clark Kent disguise. Okay, Clark Kent's not the real person. The real person is Superman, and when he just takes that off, that's not who Jesus is. 
Jesus is fully and completely human. And he's not some new synthesis of those two. He's not a third kind of being. The human and the divine natures in Jesus are absolutely distinct, and they are completely united in the one person, Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't blow your mind, it's because you're not listening right now. I understand that I will not plumb the depths of that before I die. I suspect it may take all eternity. What does that mean? It means I'm not afraid this morning to say, there's a lot here I just don't know or understand. But that doesn't mean that we're just left with ignorance. In fact, now that Jesus is fully human, we actually understand that much more about God than we did before. You understand, I've already said this, that God understands you, but it goes both ways. Now you understand God in a way that you couldn't before. You can understand the mind and the heart of God in a way that you couldn't when he was a pure spirit. See, when God was invisible, you got hints of him as he lived in his universe. And so you saw his power in nature, you saw his, his kind care for you and his provision as he fed you, and, and you saw just his endless creativity as he made all those different kind of things. But he wasn't as close as you wanted him to be. And so you weren't able to really understand fully who he was. Not even when he made those rare personal appearances. Think about Moses. Moses felt that. First time God appeared to him, it was as flames of fire in a bush. The flames were there in the bush, but the bush itself was not burned up. And Moses says to himself in Exodus chapter 3, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. And as he went over, God said to him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And you understand something of God's holiness in that moment. You understand that it is appealing. It's alluring. It, it draws you in. And yet there's also a limitation. You can't get too close because it'll hurt you. Now that was Moses' first taste of God and he never lost his appetite for this God. And God continued to give him other little tastes. I think over in Exodus 24, where the, the Israelite leaders are confirming the covenant that God has made with them. And you read that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Moses got to see more of God. He got to see more of his glory, and even that's not enough for him. Think about the time right after the golden calf incident where the Israelites were worshiping an idol. And God is very gracious in that moment. He promises that his presence will continue to go with the Israelites. And that's not enough for Moses. And so Moses in Exodus 33 says, Now show me your glory. I want more of you. I love what I've seen. It's just not enough. I'm attracted to you. I'm drawn to you. Show me your glory. And God says, okay, but just a little. I'm going to put you in a place where you can see the back of me, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Do you hear the problem that we as fallen sinful humans have? The glory of God is incredibly appealing. When you see him, you want more of him. You want to get closer. 
He's the source of everything that's good about the universe. Of course you would want to have more of that, and you'd want to be drawn to him, but you can't get closer. You can't have more. Tim Keller has an analogy with the sun that I think is very helpful here. He talks about how you cannot look directly at the sun because it'll burn out the retina of your eye. And the sun is attractive. You know that as a little kid. You want to look at it. It's compelling. As you learn more scientifically, you learn there's amazing things happening with the sun. You, you learn that there are literal flames of fire that are bursting hundreds of thousands of miles above, up above the surface of the sun. You would want to see all of that, but you can't see it because it'll destroy you. And God says to Moses, you can't look directly at my glory, no matter how much you want to, because it will burn out the retina of your soul. You can't get close because it will hurt you. It'll destroy you. It's more than you can handle. And then Jesus is born. And what just happened? You can now see God. You can come close to God. That thing that you've always longed for, you actually can look him full in the face. The God who lives in unapproachable light according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, just became approachable. He lost none of his deity, but now you can come near to him, or as Keller puts it, now there's a filter on the sun. You don't get it full strength, and so you can actually look at it. Now you can see God and not be destroyed. It's not that he is less than God. It's that the filter of his humanity now lets you see what you couldn't see before. Now he's approachable. And Moses did approach. I love this. I don't know if you remember that time where Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus climbs up a, a mountain and he takes Peter, James, and John with him and he's transfigured. His face shines like the sun and his clothes are dazzling white and he's talking to two people, one of whom is Moses. Can you imagine what that was like? This is the moment that Moses was told you can't have. I can see you. I can see your face. I'm drawn to you. I, I can get close to you. That's why Jesus became human. So that you can be with him. So that you can be with God. He became part of the human family in order to invite you into God's family. And you should hang out on that. Don't trivialize that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that was Jesus' family. They were eternally existing together, eternally loving, eternally being loved. There was no dysfunction in that family. There's no lack, there's no dissatisfaction, perfectly satisfied with each other. And then they do something that's, that, that's wild. They, they open up that family. They decide that what they have is just too good to keep to themselves. And so they open that up to make other creatures to share that love with. That's why you're here. Here, please hear this the right way. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your love. He doesn't need your service. He wants to love you. He wants you to experience something that is the best thing in the universe. He wants to share himself. In other words, it's not just Moses who wants God. It's God who wants Moses. It's God who wants you. But you and Moses have the same problem. Get too close to the burning bush, and it will destroy you. Look at his glory full on, and you'll be burned up. 
And this is going to sound funny to say it this way, but that means that you and God now have the same problem. You can't approach him, he can't approach you, although both of you want to. Now, that's not a problem that God created. You created that problem. It is a problem that God decides to solve. Jesus didn't simply come and hand out non-threatening invitations to his family. He became human so that what? So that he could take sin from humans on himself, the sin that would put you in danger every time you came near God's glory. He took that sin on himself, and then the unthinkable happened. God turned his back on Jesus. God turned his back on the only one who could legitimately look full in the face of the glory of God. Jesus was perfect. Absolutely deserved to come as close to God as he wanted, but for your sake, he chose to have God turn away from him. He chose alienation. He chose to be ostracized. You could now approach the father. The father would not approach his own son. That's the kind of service that Jesus gives. That's the kind of servant that he is. Voluntarily choosing to pay what you have owed. That's what your invitation costs. That's the heart of God. And if God remained invisible, you would never know that. You would never see it if Jesus hadn't become human. But because he became human, you can now come near to God. You can approach him. And that's why this hymn ends by saying, every knee will bow. Your knee should bow when you're aware of that kind of a God who will do that kind of thing for you. And if you have eyes to see, you can bow long before then. You can bow during this season. You can see things in this season that cause you to worship. You can see his approachability. You can see his invitation reflected in this season. Now, obviously, one of the, the easy ways to do that is look at manger scenes. Look at the, time, the, the depictions of Jesus as a baby. But don't think to yourself, oh, that's sweet. Jesus is a little tiny child. Look at that and realize that's God being approachable. It's God inviting you closer. It's an invitation that you're either going to turn away from or you're going to move toward. Do you ever notice what people do with babies? They move toward them. They lean into them. They take a step next, near them. God's inviting that step. He's inviting that lean. Take that opportunity this season. But if you push yourself, if you do the hard work, and if you think, you start to see aspects of his approachability, aspects of that invitation in a lot of different things during this season. You have to do what we talked about last week from C.S. Lewis. You have to see the sunbeam and then let your mind run back up the sunbeam to the sun. You have to see the Christmas celebration and then let your mind run back up to the source of that celebration. And if you do that, suddenly you'll see many of these elements of Christmas, of our celebration, draw you in. How many of them ask, you're invited, would you like to come closer to this great God? You could have more. Pay attention, you'll see them. I was talking with John Shepard, our youth director last week, about how he loves Christmas lights, how he loves decorating with the little tiny small ones around, uh, and, and how he loves just looking at them, and there's something warm about them. And I asked him, well, what is it about them that you like so much? And he ran his mind back up the sunbeam to the sun Literally, very much like Keller does. And he says, well, the sun is this blinding, 
bla bla blazing kind of light. It, it, it's glorious, but you can't look at it head on. You have to, at best, look out the corner of your eye. Christmas lights, however, you can do what? You can look at them directly. They don't hurt. You can see them. And when you see them, they, they light up uh, dark parts of the earth in a way that makes you almost lean into them and almost drawn to them. And they take that blinding light. They take light itself and they make light approachable. Do you know I've not looked at Christmas lights in my neighborhood the same way since that conversation? Look at them and let your mind run back up the sunbeam to the sun and see how they remind you that when Jesus becomes human, he's not just alluring, now he's approachable. Or I think about my next door neighbor and how she comes to the rest of the neighborhood at Christmas time. You realize it's really hard to do in the suburbs. I, I have a friend who, a little snarky uh, on his comment of, of, of the suburbs, he said, it's hard to get to know people in the suburbs because people don't want to be known. He said, what, what, what is it that people in the suburbs want? They want to drive into their, pull into their driveway, hit the automatic garage door opener, drive into the garage, have the door closed behind them, and never have to engage anybody around them. My next-door neighbor pushes past that mentality. She bakes cookies at this time of year, and then she walks around the neighborhood with her kids and hands them out. What is she doing? She's being approachable. She's softly breaking into other people's worlds in a way that the season actually permits. It's not a surprise that she deeply loves Jesus. What is she doing? She's doing with others something that reflects what he has done with her. He has softly invaded her world to invite her into his. You can think about that with cookies. You can think about that with caroling. Okay, caroling's fun all by itself, right? You get together with other people. You get to go around and, and have this activity. You're singing together. You get the fun of hot chocolate afterward. But if you will follow the sunbeam back to the sun, you realize, no, there's, there's another element here. There's a new dim another dimension that we can really focus on. Caroling is what? It's this soft, non-threatening approach that lets you enter into someone else's world. It lets you say, I don't want anything from you. I simply want you to have a taste of the goodness that I've had from the God who loves me. Do you ever go caroling and notice what people do when you carol outside their house? They open the door, they watch, they smile. They receive that. It's a way of entering into someone else's world that's a soft kind of a step. You're not asking them, hey, could you, would you like to get together and do a Bible study? But you're also not ignoring them. You found a culturally appropriate way to enter into their world to let them know, here's the heart of God that I know. So maybe you want to take seriously that this season actually gives you those kind of opportunities. Opportunities to invite yourself into other people's worlds. Things like cookie trays and caroling, things that you don't get to do the rest of the year, things that everybody right now just accepts as normal. And maybe you say to yourself, I don't want to pass that opportunity up this year. And so you get your family together or you grab a couple friends or you sit down with your small group and you say to each other, what can we do with our neighbors that's going to reflect Jesus becoming human? What will... What can we do that will allow them to get to know us and us to get to know them? Maybe we want to take the great Christmas hymns and go caroling around one of our neighborhoods. Wouldn't it be wild if after we got done caroling, we 
knocked on the door and we said, hey, um, we would just love to be able to pray for you. Is there anything that we can pray for you for during this season? Or more, maybe you sit down with your friends and you say, well, let's have people come over to one of our houses and we'll do a cookie bake. We'll do a cookie swap. That way it's kind of low preparation. Everybody's going to bring their own stuff together. Um, or maybe we have a white elephant gift exchange or an ugly sweater contest. We'll have fun, but it'll also be an opportunity to actually get to know people so that we have a better way, better understanding of how to love people. It's really easy to do those things with people that you know and love. What am I urging you to do? I'm, I'm urging you to push yourself to do something, one thing, with people you don't know and love. Okay, Jesus entered into the lives of people who, what, who didn't know him, who didn't love him. And there ought to be a sense in which now, having received that from him, that we accept the privilege of giving that out to other people as well. And so you hear me, at this moment, giving a second challenge. What's the second challenge for this season? What can you do individually, or what can you do with other people that will reflect the approachable, inviting heart of God? How can you utilize something in this season to reflect the approachability of God? A heart that loved you so much that he entered into the world of humanity. He entered into your world, bound himself to you now and forever so that you can be part of his world. What can you do that will reflect that reality? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for becoming human. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you that you so desperately wanted to, to connect with us, to understand us. Thank you that you wanted us to understand you and connect with you. Lord, you have this, this amazing mentality, this amazing heart that longs to serve. And you build that into each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would, through the the distractions of this season really uh, pump that up inside of us, that longing desire to, to love, to serve, to connect in ways that reflect the ways that you have loved us and served us and connected with us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.